You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is Tanya Pinkins and you're listening to You Can't Say That, my podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm curious and I like to talk to smart people who satisfy my sense of curiosity. My next guest is one of the smartest people I know. I met him through his sister, who was the hair designer on a Broadway show that I did called Play On. Very few people saw that show. It got the best reviews of the 2007 season, and had the producer kept it open, I believe that it probably would have won the Tony Award over the Titanic. But the best part of that for me was that I got to meet Harry Kelly, who gave me my first set of French tulips, and they've been my favorite flower ever since. Aww, I didn't know that. Well, welcome, Harry. I'm glad to be here. My first question for you is, how come I can't find you on the internet? (laughs) Oh, that's the story of my life. I lurk in the shadows. Uh, there are whole events that I was completely involved in, and there's no pictures of me there. I'm not sure exactly why it is, but it's usually because I'm busy arranging things. Um, Do you have any social media profile at all? No, no. Have you ever had a social media profile? No. Not one Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, nothing? Oh, no, Facebook. I do Facebook. I have a little group that I check in on Facebook. It's a a church group, and that's all I look at. Got it. That's it. Just Facebook. Well, this is... Yeah? But you brought up one of the great pains of my life already, and that's Play On. And there's so much I want to say about Play On. Um. I think you're absolutely right about how great the show was. Watching that thing go down in the way that it did, the way it played out, was devastating to me. Um, I would come, my sister was doing hair, um, and I'd come in and I could sit and I could talk to the people in the pit for hours, for hours. the show was fantastic. I t- went to the producers because I have a background in publicity and advertising, and I said, let me help you market this. And I 
gave them a, a piece that I thought would run well uh, called The Bard of Harlem on Hudson, riffing on Shakespeare. And they rolled their eyes. And it was just, mm-hmm. it, it was such a great show. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Harry? <laughs> you mean expose my background? Um, well, you said you had a background in publicity. Well, nobody knows that well, except me. So you have to tell my listeners. Well, I, I, you know, when I was, my background, it's basically, I was born on the Day of the Dead and it hasn't stopped. Oh. That's a lot of why I'm not in pictures and I'm not around. So death has been a constant traveling companion with me from an early age and living through AIDS and uh, burying four husbands um, and always just escaping it myself. I've had major abdominal surgery, quadruple bypass back surgery. I have, uh, I lost a husband in June of last year and had a major concussion. I'm amazed I can talk this easily because um, often I get from the concussion, I get stuck on words. But um, my background is every year doing something different and some catastrophe happening and having to rethink everything. And one constant, and what you suggested we might talk about was contemplation. Yes. Absolutely. I want to talk about contemplation. We'll get to that. But um, my quick bio is I got out of college. I hitchhiked from Annapolis, Maryland, where I went to St. John's and we read Dead White Men, otherwise known as the Great Books. And I hitchhiked to San Francisco. And just by chance, I got a job in the publicity department of the American Conservatory Theater. Mm. And just by chance people kept not being able to show up for their teaching roles in the conservatory. Mostly we're talking about the classes they put on for townies, which were just really a way to make money and let grown-ups in town have fun. Uh, so they'd come and they'd say, can you take my class? And I'd go, I don't know how to do this. And they'd go, you, you can do it, you can do it. So I started teaching in the conservatory and I did it really well. I didn't know how to do it, but I did it really well. I read a lot. And so I taught in the conservatory. I directed some shows in the conservatory. I went on occasionally as third understudy and things. And um, then ACT blew up. Bill Ball was doing crazy things with grant money, turning them into gold bars and putting them in safety deposit boxes. <laughs> No, that's a story. I think it's true. Everybody said really? it. I think it's true. It was that kind of craziness going on. We were having daily company meetings. and um, Anyway, the whole company kind of fell apart for a while. And at that point, I started a little company called Fifth Wall. And we had one-act festivals. And it was like bulk theater. We'd run nine one-act plays just in cycle, and we had a time clock, and you timed when you went in and when you went out, and that's how much you paid. (laughs) And people really got into that because they could come at any time and disrupt the play, and the actors could yell at them and say, look, this is an important part. Shut up. Stand there for a minute. (laughs) And um, then I did stand-up. My friend Reggie was a cabaret singer, 
And he asked me once, he said, will you open for me? I said, Reggie, what are you talking about opening? You want me to come set up tables? And he said, no, I want you to be the opening act. I said, I don't do an opening act. What are you talking about? He said, just sit on the stool and tell stories like you tell. And I didn't want to do that, but I'll do anything on a dare. So I thought, I'll do a stand-up routine. And um, I did one about someone who thought he was supposed to arrange the tables and it ended up on the microphone. And it was a huge success. And I got a bunch of jobs out of it. And in a year, I was getting to work with some people who became superstars. Like uh, who? Like Whoopi and Robin. Whoopi Goldberg and Robin Williams. Um, and I was good at stand-up, but... AIDS hit at that time, and I had a husband who was dying, and mm. um, I did some routines about AIDS, and they were really funny, but it's a hard thing to do when you have to take care of people, mm. and the onslaught of AIDS in that time came on until about two-thirds of my friends were dead. There was no corner in San Francisco that did not have a specter sitting on the stoop. And um, I had two. I know sometimes I look at what they call comedy right now. No, I said sometimes I look at what they call comedy shows right now, and I think, oh, we lost a generation to AIDS, and that's why we have this stuff we have right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I have two, I had two sisters living in New York, and they said, you can have a year to grieve after James dies, and then if you don't move to New York, we're coming to get you. And um, I moved to New York. I did some theater stuff. Um, I got into the... Some theater stuff like the... Some off-off-Broadway stuff. Starry Road to the Ice Machine, which my sister, my two sisters were in. Uh, what is it, the Ice Machine? Starry Road to the Ice Machine, a play written by Bill Knave. Okay. Um and uh, when and then you got in the BMI Lehman Brothers workshop, right? Lehman Engel workshop, yeah. Lehman Engel, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, had met the guys, I had met the guys years earlier before I ever thought of writing for musical theater who wrote um, Kismet. Uh, I am blanking. But we were having drinks at... at Yosemite at the Iwani, and I said, what, what do you do when people come to you and they want to be songwriters? And they said, we tell them to go away and write 200 songs and come back, and then we'll talk to them. So I thought, I should do that. I should write 200 songs. I did not know how to notate music at the time. So I just started writing songs, and I'd have to call people up and go like, I don't know what the time signature is on this. And they go, how does it go? And I go, da 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 And they go, it's 12-8. Do not ever call me this late again. But <laughs> I wrote about 300 songs. A lot of them were bad. Some were good. I sent three into the Lehman Engel people at BMI. They invited me to come in and audition. And I spent two years in what is basically the school part of it. It was fabulous. It was an incredible group of people. And then they invited me to go into the advanced workshop, which is, um, which was not so exciting. 
Well, who was in the first workshop with you and who was in the second workshop? The exciting one versus the not exciting one? Well, the exciting one was a bunch of people who didn't know anything or anybody. Um, and so? And so, uh, and the teachers were interesting because they seemed really tired, the guys running it. Uh, who was the, running it then? Uh, Skip. Skip. What was interesting was the third year was Mara Yeston was running the workshop, and he was fabulous because he always came in and asked us a question about something that had nothing to do with musical theater. So we had to think a little bit before we started, so we got engaged mentally a little bit. And I did that, and as part of that, I, I wrote the... This is the podcast where I can say what we can't say, so I'm going to tell the story of putting on Travelers at the West Side Theater. Um, I wrote a musical based on 5B, which was the ward, the AIDS ward in San Francisco, and it was pretty comic. Um, we were putting it together. Alexis was producing with a friend, and... We had nothing. We had nothing, but we had all these big producers coming. People wanted to see it. Um, and a few days before we open, Alexis says, I've got some set pieces that are going to make this look really good the way you, you're staging it. And she comes in with stage hands from Beauty and the Beast, carrying platforms that have written on the side, Beauty and the Beast, Act 2, Scene 1. My sister, Mike, was working at Roosevelt Hospital. She comes down the street with nurses pushing hospital beds mm. into the theater. And so they did this on pretty much a daily basis while we, while we ran. But um, And then I got a temp job in a big ad agency in New York. And in two years... I don't know how it happened. I was a vice president at Young and Rubicam. So at what ad agency? Young and Rubicam. <laughs> Harry, how do you go from making a play about AIDS to being the vice president at Young and Rubicam? How does that happen? You get a temp job and you get irritated that everybody's doing a really bad job. <laughs> and you say, let me help you fix this. And you, you fix this problem. The, I went in originally at Ogilvy and Mather, which I think is just called Ogilvy now. And it was the biggest advertising pitch ever done. They were pitching to get all of IBM's business worldwide into their agency. Um, and there were about 40 temps working on it. It was a mess. And I just went, this is never going to work. So I threw all the art directors out and just started getting the work organized as a temp as a temp and uh then the creative head came to me and said i need to change this whole thing these are not people ads i need people in all the ads can you do that and i said yes but everyone everybody's gonna have to do what i tell them and so we <laughs> did that and we got it out and it was a successful pitch and it was the first deal of its kind to be on the front page of the times wow and there I was all of a sudden in advertising and we're going to talk about contemplation. These are far apart mm -hmm. of what we can get. 
I don't think they're far apart at all. I mean, I just was watching a, um, a masterclass about these two very big ad guys, um, who did like the got milk and, uh, they seemed very sort of deeply spiritual guys. They were night and day from each other, but they were not, they were artists. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like art is, I think of art as um, a receiving, like I'm, I'm downloading something like I'm mm-hmm. receiving something. And, you know, I, I sent you this book, the art of contemplation by Richard Rudd, who's part of the Gene Keys. And I'm going to just read um, what he says, you know, contemplation is in it. I mean, you can disagree, but he says, the English word contemplation comes from the combining of the Latin root templum, meaning a temple, and the prefix con, meaning with. One might therefore say that the inner meaning of the word is to go into one's own temple, one's own sacred inner space. And I feel like that's something all artists do. I think that's true. St. Teresa of Avila wrote a whole book about that called The Interior Castle. And it's about going inside and going from room to room, exploring different levels of consciousness. She puts it in a much more beautiful and simple way, but it's not unlike things that you read about exploring chakras i mean there's something of this in every religion hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, well, I guess I would have to say for you to be a temp and go to being a VP of a an ad agency without any formal education in that way, you had to go within to find something. I suppose I did, but, but it was a little bit more like uh, diving off the high rocks into the quarry that's been filled with water. I just kept having things happen. Yeah, I know you like to say that, oh, I looked into this and I looked into that and I looked into this, but you're an incredible composer. You're an incredible mind. And I had most- a spiritual director who said to me once, well, I was really lucky. And she said, you're not lucky. You're grateful. <laughs> <laughs> and You're, I can't remember to think of gratitude instead of luck. Not gonna. Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, the facts of your biography are something that I didn't know, and I've known you for twenty years. And the facts that you just said are something I don't know because we talk about so many other things. But I knew my listeners would really want to know about that background you have, 
And I think it is your discipline and practice of contemplation that has allowed you to freely move from space to place, from career to career that you think of as luck and jumping off of a diving board. But I think that that is deeply rooted in your ability to go within and to go into different rooms and to find the tools that are required for the moment you find yourself in. I think you're probably right. I think you're probably I'm definitely right. right. <laughs> you're definitely right. You usually are. You usually are. Um, and I'm usually hemming and hawing, and it's. I was worried today when we talked that I'd go into the long pause as I do when we have our phone calls, and you go, "Are you there? Are you there?" And I go, "Yeah, I'm here. I'm here," because you make me think. Um, I don't have friends who make me think as much as you do, so I, I appreciate that. Um, I feel like right now. You know, I think for me, for the three, the three months that this has been going on, I kept thinking of it as a pause. And then I had a long talk with the head of Quest Laboratories and the, you know, the data he gave me uh, basically settled me into a space of knowing, oh, this is the new world beginning. It's yeah. a new world beginning. Well, the danger, and, the danger that we fall into, and I'm going to, I do identify as a contemplative. I am a member of a contemplative order, uh, Emmaus Monastery, which is not far from me here in Michigan. And um, I do have vows, which require that I spend so much time in prayer and that I do active social justice work. Um, the One of the things that I've learned as a contemplative through meditation, through awareness and stuff, is that it is about living in the present. When you look at people who have been in situations like ours times 100, I'm thinking of Damon Eccles, one of the Memphis Three, who was imprisoned for 18 years for a murder he did not commit. Mm. And I'm not comparing myself to him. I have a marvelous situation. I just can't go anywhere. Um, uh, but when they asked him how he got through, he said he had to stop thinking about tomorrow, mm. that it had to be about today. And a similar thing, I think it was Admiral Stockdale. I think he was an admiral. He was imprisoned in Vietnam for eight years. And in an interview with him, they said, who had the most struggles that kept them from making it through. And he said, the optimists, mm. the ones who believed that we were going to be out before Christmas and then believed we were going to be out before Easter and they died of broken hearts. Mm. And so this, my being as a contemplative has to be wary of hope. Um, now, you know that everybody's going to be upset about that. We just have the hope president, and people are wanting the hope president to be still here. But you're saying be wary of hope. I'm, I want, I want, I'm a little bit with you. I, I want him to still be here, too. I, you know, I want, to, I want to iron his trousers, and I want to make his wife tea. Um, the, the hope 
Hope is one of the three primary virtues of the spirituality I practice. And, uh, but I have noticed it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. When Wayne and I had the accident last June and he was in a coma, really, I don't know that he was in a real coma. I think he was just breathing on a machine. Everybody got the idea that he was going to live because his toe wiggled at some point. I knew the night of the accident when they wheeled me into the room he was in and put my hand on his arm before they flew him into New Orleans. He's not going to make it. I knew he's not going to make it. But everybody had to have their hope time for the week that we kept him encumbered, as I like to call it. Um... And I didn't feel like I could mess with their hope. I felt like something they had to go through. Um, but what was it like for you to, you know, this is your partner and you've got all these people who are invested in their hope and you have a clarity and a knowing and a comfort with that knowing that would devastate them. What is that like? It's like... It's like watching, you know, let me come at it around the corner. Uh, People, especially my Christian friends, often say to me that some version of God has a plan for me and I have to discover it. I don't like that God. Mm. I, I don't like the God who plans my life for me. It's like, who wants a loving parent who decides what you should do and punishes you till you do what they want? Mm. The God that I try to envision is a God who hears what my heart's desire is and says, well, it's a good idea. It could be problematic in this way. So part of contemplation is opening up to those two sides of your heart's desire. And so looking at the people who did not want to hear yet that Wayne was going to die, it was like not my business to run that for them, but to let them experience the hope and then experience the disappointment. It was their hope and their disappointment, and it's their journey. And I could have spent some time explaining to them, but it just didn't feel like my business, Mm. you know? And it also to do and was so, it a burden to you? No. Was there hope a burden to you? No, it was not a burden. I did feel sad about it because uh, I knew they were going to have to go through that disappointment. But I was also in heavy grieving, so I only had so much time for them. And did you have anybody to be in the space of holding that grieving with you? Yes, my oldest sister, Mike, was there. She's a PA who worked in trauma for most of her career. And I said to her the morning after the accident, I said, I know that he's not going to make it. She said, I know that too. Mm. And uh, I had a wonderful and have a wonderful relationship with Wayne's sister, Nikki. And, um, you know, often in-laws in a person on life support situation, it can be difficult. 
um, the conversation that Nikki and I had about disencumbering him. I don't like saying life support, but disencumbering him. I said to her, Nikki, I will not do anything you don't want to do. She said to me, he would not want to live this way. I said, done. That was our whole conversation. The head of uh, trauma came to me later and said, that never happened. I've never seen a discussion like that. We were both so clear, and Nikki knew, and I knew. And Nikki and I are as different as night and day. She's like Southern Belle, completely put together. And I'm a so-called contemplative who's sitting in the messiest room I've ever been in. You know, if Nikki saw my room, she'd leave town. I think that right now, you know, with coronavirus and COVID-19, there are so many people who are in that situation of having to make decisions about disencumbering people and who are also wrestling with hope. And, and I think that, you know, for me, that is also why your, your story is a meaningful and powerful in this moment. Um, particularly because you've done it with, you know, partners four times. Four times. And that means your family has had to do it with you four times. Yes. yes. Does it get easier? Well, since this is a podcast where we can uh, say things we can't say, people don't like to hear this, um, but it does. It can get easier but you have to work at it. You have to take what you learned before and apply it. Does it get easy? No. Uh, is this grieving process the hardest one I've been through? Yes. Um, uh, part of that is because, you know, I had broken bones and a really bad concussion. Um, but part of it is that I know how to grieve better. And uh, so I know how to go into that place when it's time to go into that place. I'm lucky I live in a little small house. Um, it would be a mansion in New York, but here it's a little small house. Um, and when I need to wail, I can wail. Um, most people, in grief groups that I encounter, most people want to talk about grief, want to say it never gets easier. It may be the case for them. It's not my experience. My experience is it does get easier, but it gets easier because you learn how to manage it. You learn how to do things so that you will eat, so that you will go out for a walk, so that you will call someone, so that you will ask for help. You will but, but be independent. But we've learned, I mean, we, you and I have talked about the fact that sometimes you still don't do that. Yes, that's right. That's right. Sometimes I don't do that. But four days out of seven, I do that, as opposed to earlier in my life when it would have been no days at all. So you know, what is this work? that you have learned to do over four 
you know, husbands dying and over your own health issue? What is this work of grieving that you've learned to do? I mean, there's also the grieving over, for me, I imagine, of your health. Yes. Yeah, that, I suppose that's grief. It's more irritating and annoying than grief. Like, it's annoying that I have never driven a car because it would be really nice to get in the car and drive to Lake Michigan and walk in the water there. Um, you know, there, you know, because a lot of it I'm used to going on. So I just, it's easier for me to accept it than it would be for a lot of people. Um, the seizure disorder, which I've had um, since birth is really irritating, but, that's gotten better in the last two years. I don't think I'm having seizures anymore. I don't know what what's going on. Um, How does contemplation, like for me, I'm talking to you and, you know, one of the things I love about you is you have this great sense of humor and we always end up just laughing about the darkest, darkest things. We do, we do. <laughs> um, but how does contemplation figure into your being able to have lost four husbands and first of all, to have lost two husbands and to even be willing to try again. If you don't call that hope, what is it? It's not hope. It's, um, revelation. Um, it's, uh, I never meant to find these guys, but I, I one thing, we all did church together, and it's crazy to have had four gay husbands, all who wanted to go to church with me. Mm. Especially Christian church, because let's face it, Christian church isn't a really nice place for <laughs> for women, gay men, people of color. It's not a nice place for most people, and the people who think it's a nice place are really hurting themselves badly, and then hurting us because of it. Um, but when I consult the ancestors, they say, oh, you go to church, you, you go to church, you go to Christian church. Um, and what do you mean when you say you consult the ancestors? Well, it's a silly way of saying, um, I get some value out of knowing that for generations, my ancestors read the same pages, said the same prayers, um, that I have a connection to to them. And to the ones I remember, my great aunt, Nanny, who went to some non-denominational church somewhere once, I said, Nanny, what do you think about the Bible? And she said, oh, honey, the Bible is just a book where God tells you 300 ways he loves you. That's all. So, you know, that's a little bit... <laughs> you know, I didn't say... Well, Nanny, what about the genocide part? What was he saying to those people? <laughs> and what about Egyptians? Like any Egyptian has to read the Bible. What, what's he saying to them? You know. <laughs> we do laugh at the dark. We laugh at the dark. Oh, clearly she hadn't read the book. She'd just been listening to the minister. <laughs> well, she, she read it every day. She read it every day. Really? Uh -huh. Are you sure she wasn't just reading the Psalms? <laughs> uh, the Psalms? You don't know what's in the Psalms, clearly. 
<laughs> well, the couple I've read are pretty, they've, they've given me comfort in dark times. Okay, I'm going to share a few lines from Psalm 109, which has been very helpful to me with the current president, because I didn't know how to pray for him. And I chant the Psalms every day, so they come cycling through. Um, this is from Psalm 109. Set a wicked man against him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his appeal be in vain. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife become a widow. Damn. <laughs> it's a whole poem like that. And when you chant it in this sort of Gregorian way, it's like, you know. Um, unfortunately, we don't read that in church. We skip that one. Mm. And I think that's really sad. So that's a prayer and you pray it? Yeah, it's a curse prayer. Woo! Yeah. I never even heard of such a thing. Well, that, I, I'm just calling it that because that's that's what it seems to be. But it would it would have been chanted by uh, people, you know, going up to the temple or in the temple in ancient days. Wow, it's a doozy. But what it, what's good for me is when it comes up, it gives me a chance to de-stress about some of the things that you know. It, it allows me to touch a dark side of myself. Um, and then look at that. And you're like, do you like this dark side of yourself? Jury is out. I think that's a very hard thing. I, I honestly, for me, you know, the plant medicines have allowed me to look at the darkness in myself and to make make peace with it. I think that when I've done plant medicine, sometimes they've shown me all of my fears and insecurities and my, you know, ugly thoughts. And one of the things I learned about plant medicine is that you're not supposed to resist it because the resistance, you know, sort of increases the stress. And so, you know, if it's self-loathing, if I'm, you know, doing mushrooms, it's like, okay, we're doing self-loathing. Let's self-loathe. <laughs> How self-loathing can I be right now? You know, um, I think that that's a hard thing for people to do. It goes against our religious ideas. It goes against our cultural ideas that we would ever indulge in embracing our dark shadow. But it is what meditation is for, too. This is Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast, You Can't Say That. That was part one of my conversation with Harry Kelly. Come back for part two. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together 
we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.